starting in verse 11. Paul has been talking about how uh, God's people have enjoyed the benefits of, of grace and how he's called them to a new life. And in so doing, talking about this new life, he also calls them to and talks about how they've been called to a new community. So while I get these things on my head, my face will move forward. Hear the reading from God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his authoritative word. You may be seated. Well, it's haunted us for centuries here in America. And I have to say, it's haunted us in recent decades and even recent years and months. It's racism. We're going to talk about racism today. After hundreds of years of forced slavery in America until 1860s, after Jim Crow segregation laws until the 1960s, just when we thought it was getting better, in 1990s, the Rodney King incident happened. During the 2000s, and really even to this day, we saw it happen with Hispanics, that Hispanics were excluded or highlighted as being different in an unhealthy way. Last year in 2014, in Ferguson, Saint Lu around St. Louis, the community erupted in the shooting of Michael Brown. As if that wasn't enough, this past summer a young man walked into a midweek prayer meeting at Emmanuel Baptist in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot nine African Americans. He shot them dead, including Pastor Clementa Pickney. Racism doesn't seem to go away. It's been 50 years since the Civil Rights Movement, 
And we'd all agree that we've made progress. I think even our African-American friends and family would say as much. We even have an African-American president. But it would be fair to say that we still have a long ways to go. And while government and our culture continues to appeal to changes in our culture, the real work has to be done in the human heart. Where, where can we go as Christians in light of the human heart regarding the issue of racism? Where can the church go regarding this issue that seems to dog us everywhere we go in every culture and generation? Well, today we're going to dive into and dare to dive into this issue of racism because the Bible has something to say about it distinctly. And it's a, it has something to say about it because it's a problem that's haunted us as God's people and even and especially in cultures from time immemorial, from Adam and Eve, as Blair even said earlier. It's in every generation. It's in every nation. It's in every community. Dare I suggest it's in every family. And yet God has a way beyond it, a way that gets to our hearts. Here's how we're going to go at this today. We're going to go at race and racism with three things. We're going to talk about the truth about racism. We're going to talk about grace and racism. We're going to talk about love and race at the same time. So let's start out today by talking about the biblical truth about race. And here's the first truth about race. It seems self-evident, but we're going to state it anyway. Race, and we might even say corresponding cultures, are good. And are from God. Race is good and is from God. God created all men, and all men have dignity being made in the image of God, and that includes their race. Indeed, the gospel verse from Revelation 5 this morning takes it one step further beyond creation to redemption, where it talks about how God and through Christ even redeemed men from every tongue, tribe, and nation by his blood. Clearly from Scripture already in the principles of theology and from Scripture, God dignifies race and different races with his creation and his redemption in Christ. And here's what that means. What that means is we have to stop saying things like, race doesn't matter to me and I'm colorblind. Because race matters to God. And race is a good thing and a beautiful thing that we should freely appreciate. We don't need to minimize God's creative work in different people's lives and even in different races and cultures. Let's go to the second truth that goes with this. Uh, we are all to some degree uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with even and even mishandle racial di differences in our sin. In the best case, we are often prone to assuming things about people very different from us in the color of their skin or even the cultural background. In fact, in the worst case, racial differences turn into a kind of, of a racial self-righteousness where my race is better than your race, and sometimes, or my people are better than your people or those people. That's what the language sometimes is. And sadly, this takes us to ugly places as, as people and as individuals. And in the worst cases, it takes us to oppression as cultures 
even violence against those who are in the minority races. Third, Jesus lived in a racist world. You ever thought of that? And that Jesus was actually born into a race. Jesus himself was born a Jew in the Middle East in the first century. It is true we don't exactly know what color Jesus was, but it would be safe to say he wasn't white. He probably wasn't black. He had a a kind of skin color we're not real sure about at that time. But not only that, he lived in a culture where race was a big deal. In fact, in, in the first century Judean and Galilean culture, Linden, there was a social ladder centered around race. At the top of the ladder were the Jews. The next rung down on the social ladder were the Samaritans. Jews typically looked down on Samaritans as half-breed Jews who sold out and married into other races. The next rung down were the Gentiles in Jewish culture. And just so we're clear, that's most of us here. Basically all of us here. A Gentile is anyone who is not born a Jew. And so Jews, to some degree, um, and Samaritans to some degree as well, did not want to associate with Gentiles. They didn't want to get themselves too close in kind of secondhand sin, uh, like secondhand smoke. Something might rub off from those people, is what they would say. But I have to tell you, the Jews even had problems among themselves, not just with a form of racism, but elitism. In John 1, Jesus calls Philip to follow him, and Philip went to Nathanael and said, Hey, come and see the Messiah who's come. His name is Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. You know how Nathanael responds in that? <laughs> Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Clearly, racism, elitism, of some form existed all over the Jewish world and even into the Roman world. And why is that? Because we have a way of taking differences and we hold them against people and misuse our observations against differences. Third truth. This misunderstanding of differences bleeds over into the church which also had racial problems during the first century. And Paul's talking about it right here in our text in Ephesians 2. Look at our text, in fact, when he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's talking about Gentiles are uncircumcised and Jewish, the uncircumcised. Uh, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Clearly, he's saying you were set apart for a time, particularly during Old Testament, where God just focused on a singular people in, on some measure. So there was a difference within the church between Jews and Gentiles. And 
we have to understand Paul is speaking as a Jew who knew this was a big deal. He didn't like associating with Jews prior to becoming a Christian. Jews and Gentiles just did not hang out in that time. So what were Jesus and Paul facing in this fact? Well, they were facing racism. Racism, sometimes subtle, sometimes explicit. And we've got to ask, what, what has that got to do with us today and what they were facing in the church then? Well, in every church, in every culture, there is a majority culture and there's a minority culture. There are ways of relating and talking and doing life, cultural assumptions that go on in our midst as people that sometimes we're not aware of. And for the major minority culture who lives in a majority culture, you regularly bump into these assumptions, culturally even racially, so that there are struggles with awkwardness, in some cases anger, or even feeling like you're overlooked. Now, white folks in the church, which includes me, I'm rather white, uh, like a certain kind of music typically, and we assume it is normal for church to do music that way. But for a minority who walks in, they may not really connect completely with that kind of music. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with the music or any of the people involved, but it is to say it's awkward. It's awkward. Majority cultures in churches, even society, tend to be naive about the awkwardness, tend to be insensitive about how they affect the minority culture. Chris Rice, in the great book, More Than Equals, gives an excellent illustration of this. Church... Even culture is a little bit like having a blind elephant being in the same room with an irritated mouse. The blind elephant doesn't realize what he's doing moving around, and the mouse is dodging and trying to keep from getting stepped on and bumping into this gigantic elephant. What's worse, if you might imagine, is if there are a bunch of blind elephants in the room with a few uh, if you will, small mice. So that begs the question, what happens when a herd of blind elephants starts stepping on and around the, the mice and the mice are trying to avoid them? Well, here's what we call that in scriptural and biblical language. It's called alienation. Alienation, broken relationship. Broken relationship is the universal result of racism. Alienation is isolation from a group or activity in which one should belong. Alienation occurs when we use race or really any human distinction to keep those people out and keep our people in. Now we have to ask, how does God respond to this alienation that occurs often around race in particular? Well, we have a great example in the book of the Old Testament, Numbers, that was read, read to you by uh, Blair a little earlier. Numbers 12, Moses uh, and the people of God are in the wilderness, 
And apparently, according to Numbers 12, Moses marries a Cushite woman. Now today, Cush is where we would, uh, on the map of Africa, where, it's, where it is, it would, uh, Cush would be where southern Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia come together. It would be fair to assume that in Numbers 12, the Cushite woman's skin was probably pretty dark. Hence the response of Miriam and even Aaron to when Moses married her. In other words, Moses was in an interracial marriage. And how did his family respond? Well, like most families who experience interracial marriage, Miriam and Aaron freaked out. They expressed their displeasure about Moses' wife. And so what does God do? Well, really, they even express, express displeasure about uh, Moses himself and his judgments. So what does God do? He calls them all together. And he lets Aaron and Miriam know his displeasure. And then he carries out temporal judgment on Miriam. And he does it in two ways. He gives her leprosy, white as snow. Leprosy being that pasty, terrible disease that eats away at the skin and the limbs of a person. And he also kicked her out of the camp, away from God's people. You see, this is ironic judgment from God. Where he's saying, okay, Miriam, you're so proud of your whiterness than the Cushite woman. Well, let's make you totally white with leprosy. And then he says, not only that, you so were uh, um, uh, ostracizing her by your comments about Moses because he married her, that you will be ostracized outside the camp and have to wait it out as you're healed from the leprosy. In other words, he teaches Miriam about the dangers of making racism and false judgments about people via their race a grounds for understanding them. Needless to say, God is displeased with racism in Scripture and condemns it even among the Israelites. In fact, I would submit to you that while God focused on the Israelites as a people during the Old Covenant with Moses and thereafter up to Christ, long before the New Testament came along, God instructed the Israelites to be active in including the nations, in including other races in their midst, in being a light to the nations. That language shows up in the Old Testament before it shows up in the New Testament with Christ and the church. In fact, David's mighty men, if you go look at them in, uh, in, in the uh, Old Testament books where it, it lists his mighty men who followed him, they're from everywhere. They're from all over the place. The implication being David was welcoming in, calling in men from every tongue, tribe, and nation to labor with him in building the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, fast-forwarding to the New Testament, reached out to the races that were taboo in Jewish culture. For example, Jesus talked with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Remember what I told you earlier about Jews and Samaritans? Definite racial difference. And Jesus is talking not only with a Samaritan, but a woman. And everyone condemned him for it. And yet he shared the gospel with her. 
and shared himself as the one Messiah with her. Not only that, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus took his ministry way north, way up north of where Judea, Galilee, even Israel was back in the Old Testament, to Tyre and Sidon, what used to be Phoenicia, and interacted with a Syro-Phoenician woman with the gospel. In other words, Jesus left the hood to redeem others in another hood. So what was God doing then with his people like David in the Old Testament? And what was Jesus doing in his ministry that he would go to these places, even reaching out to different races? Well, guys, this is the concept that is crucial for understanding how Christ overcomes racism in himself. And it's called reconciliation. Reconciliation between the races. Reconciliation meaning making what is historically and in the flesh two enemies to become one and friends. What Jesus was doing, what David was doing, what God calls the church to do is to gather very different people together in the church. And Paul even talks about this in our text. Look at verse 13 of our text. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here it's talking about those who are far brought near, those who are Gentiles brought into the fold of the predominantly Jewish church in those first decades of the church. And they did it through Christ alone. What does this mean? God is bringing different races into the church. And and he's saying in this text that he does it through the breaking down of the wall of hostility that shows up in self-righteous, man-made standards that we create among ourselves. And in this case, it's even talking about how the Gentiles are brought in by God breaking down even some of the uh, historic ceremonial and civil laws that were practiced in the Old Testament as those were abrogated in Christ and Christ in the gospel brought more into the kingdom from abroad. God, in other words, is uniting in himself in the church one man, one people. How? Verse 17, by reconciliation, by making peace, between people who are in the flesh natural enemies. How does this reconciliation come about? Does it come about by a cultural solution like music or choir in church, or excuse me, or church? Does it come out by in church by a church vision or ministry activity? No, the thing or really the person who gathers us together in reconciliation Is Christ who reconciles us to God first and foremost. It's Christ who bridges the gap between us and God in the enmity and hostility that exists there because of the way our sinfulness sets us against God. Remember, Christ left the wonders and glories of heaven in the incarnation and came into our world to move towards us in reconciliation. He made the initiative to say, I want to know you in all of your brokenness, 
Yes, in all of your racism. I want to be involved in your life to make a difference. In other words, Christ draws us together as his people because he is our peace. Did you see that in our text? Our peace is not in each other. It's not in any other person. It's in our one common Lord and Savior. Our tendency as Christians is to think that our unity is in our spiritual leader, a pastor, a vision, or a church itself. But really, Christ is our peace. Christ is our common Lord who unites our hearts by changing us from the inside out in the Spirit. I am making a case today that He is our true and ultimate hope to break through racism that has existed in the church for decades, centuries, that exists in our hearts in latent ways. Christ is the one who gets a hold of us and convinces us of our dignity with God and others' dignity with God so that in Christ we are one with one another. What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? I mean, how do we respond to this? Well, it means that every person that God brings to Redeemer, every race, every culture, every background, every socioeconomic status, was meant to be here by God. God wants us to live in the tension of our unity and our diversity in Christ. Think of it like this. Uh, Someone will come into this church and they will handle life very differently than you. They will like different music or different kinds of food than you. And sometimes that's very uncomfortable and awkward. But it just may be that you and I, by them being in our lives, are called to grow and to learn how to love in new ways, even in our differences. We are stretched by differences in the church to learn love. This is a first step to understanding what it means to live in love. Because it's so easy to stay with our kind of people and our kind of culture and our kind of stuff in the world that we want. But how much more does God want us to see the grand glory of his creation and of his church by calling us to move into the differences? The first step to moving into these differences and into this life of love is admitting our sin. It is admitting especially the sin of racism in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Most of us in this room here, including me and especially me, are in the majority culture. And we need to admit that we have done racist things and been complicit in racism expressed in our families and in our culture. What do I mean complicit? We didn't speak up when it was wrong. I can tell you today that I'm a southern boy who grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm a recovering racist. God got a hold of my heart as a young Christian in my teen years and convicted me of the things I said about people who were my classmates and my friends, 
convicted me about how I treated them and the attitudes I had about them, the assumptions I had about them, and has been working on that ever since for decades. I am honored. Honored to be the pastor of African Americans, of Hispanics, and Asian Americans. I don't deserve it. But God has blessed me and saved me by His grace that I might have that privilege. I am furthermore proud to tell you today and pleased to tell you that our, our denomination is in process as we speak of repenting of the racism we've carried around going way back. I'm pleased to say that the 30th and 32nd General Assembly some 15 years ago of the PCA came clean with how many of our churches actually practice racism intentionally excluding African Americans among others in our midst from our churches. And in 2015, the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of our nation, our denomination upped the ante this past summer by beginning putting together an overture that will basically say we have been not only guilty of racism in our practice, but even guilty of complicity in our culture by not speaking out for justice and against injustices in our times. I am instructed by our denomination and happily preach and teach to you that God calls us, particularly among the majority culture, but yeah, even the minority culture, to repent of our racism, to turn away from the inclinations of our hearts when we see somebody of different color than us and actually engage them in love not rejection. We are called to more than the culture tells us to do around this issue. Let me explain. We are called to more than integration. We are called to reconciliation personally. We are about way more than civil rights as a people. We are about brotherhood. And we are about way more than diversity, groupthink, and a false piece of let's all just get along. We are about the cross of Christ changing each and every one of us in our perspectives about different people and in particularly different Christians so that we're changed in how we relate and love. Did you notice in our text today in verses 13 and 16, that it says we are reconciled with God by the cross. We are reconciled with each other by the cross. And why is that? Because we carry around guilt. Guilt for the ways we've treated people and the ways we've thought about them. Only at the cross can we of Jesus can we fully deal with what we have thought, what we have said, what we have done, and be made new to engage in relationship that changes everything. What does that change look like? What happens when you encounter Christ at the cross, even with your latent racism, even with what you think and don't want to say? 
Well, I've got five things to highlight that we can do. And the first is this. We, we've got to go to the cross recognizing that we can't right ourselves with this. That's the worst thing you can do is out of your guilt, try and make it right on your own. You'll actually do damage with other races when you do that. Let Christ right you. And I can tell you, as he writes you and teaches you a new way through the cross, you will bumble. You will stumble. You will say stupid things as you engage with the races. And yet it will also, Jesus will take you to strange and beautiful places of reconciliation with races you're normally uncomfortable with. Remember, when you follow Jesus in new faith, and we're always getting new faith, We've got faith in Christ once and for all, but there's new faith in sanctification and growth. When you go through that, it feels really strange. It feels odd. And the result is when you enter into a relationship with a race that you're uncomfortable with, you'll find that that discomfort is actually holy discomfort. It's holy goodness as you're engaging what that means is we stop jumping to conclusions about each other. We ask questions of people who are racially different than us, and we're curious with them. And consider, what's it like to be you with your unique cultural background and racial background? In other words, we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. How would you want to be treated if you were in the minority culture? Would you want people to listen to you? Would you want people to care and take an interest in your unique cultural context? Not that everyone has to adopt everybody's cultural context, but just be curious and care and learn. Remember what it would be like to be the mouse in a room full of blind elephants. I was talking with an African-American sister a few weeks ago, and she told me how much she enjoys her, her white friends, and she spends a lot of time with white friends, and they often go traveling together, but sometimes they go traveling together, they'll, they'll drive uh, into towns or, or areas where uh, they need to get gas or get uh, some food at a gas station or something like that, and she's really uncomfortable doing that. You know what that is? Because as an African-American walking into some towns, into some stores, when you walk in, they stare at you. They stare at you as a part of the majority culture, expecting you are going to do something against the law, maybe like steal, expecting you to be a dangerous person. How would you feel as a majority culture if you walked into a store and every time you walked in the store, somebody's staring at you with suspicion? How would you feel about that? That is what our minority culture brothers and sisters deal with all the time. And sometimes we don't pay attention as the majority culture. The, second, the third thing we have to think about, about how we can engage racism, is the only way to really understand someone is to make a friend a heart friend to actually practice hospitality. And hospitality is when you say, not just come into my house, but come into my heart. 
That's what Christian hospitality is. We're called to actually engage with people of different racial backgrounds and find out that they're a lot like us. Maybe over a meal we actually find we agree on a lot of things and, yeah, even disagree on some things like politics, and we get in disagreements. And in that process of disagreements, we work it out so that we get on the other side together and know that Jesus brought us through. Guys, that's Christianity at its core. Furthermore, I think it is the duty of the majority culture to even look out for the minority culture, especially for our brothers and sisters in the church. Justice matters to God, and it should matter to us for those who may be treated in ways that are unjust in our midst. How do we know we're actually making progress in dealing with our racism together? Well, when you start feeling uncomfortable, that's a good sign. When you start feeling uncomfortable that you're out of your comfort zone and really don't know what to do, uh, and you need Jesus and need his guidance and help, even counsel from a minority brother or sister, that's a good sign that you're making progress for the kingdom. Finally, when considering what we can do, about the racism thing, we have to go to our beliefs and remember where we're headed with our minority brothers and sisters. Heaven. We need a vision of heaven that is not white, Anglo-Saxon, suburban America. The real heaven, like you read in Revelation and other places, is truly a sea of many colors, of culture, of beautiful things from all over the world and beautiful people from all over the world. It's races and colors and diversity together in unity center around one, the glorious peacemaking Christ who brings us together. Our focus is on him. And love for us means that we keep an eye on the prize of Christ in the midst of all the racial tension that's going on around us in this world. Worshiping together in our beautiful differences is actually of God. That is the ultimate grace of race with the glory of God. In conclusion... This past summer, it was a terrible moment that shocked me when 21-year-old Dylan Roof shot our African-American brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Baptist in Charleston, South Carolina. I texted my friend, an African-American brother, Howard Brown, immediately when I heard about it and asked him if his family was okay. Uh, I was, he told me that his family was not in that church. They were in another uh, AME church but that they knew many of the people that were involved. His father was okay. Uh, We all, I think, were concerned this past June when it happened about what fallout might occur racially, socially, perhaps riots and other things. And then it happened. Then it happened. Dylan Roof was captured, brought to his bond hearing, 
And the family members of the victims met him there. These who had been affected by these horrible hate crimes stood up in court and said that incredible thing. These brothers and sisters said the impossible, that they forgave Dylan Roof. The world watched in awe. Muslims around the world watched in awe. When Nadine Collier said, you hurt me, and you hurt a lot of people to Dylan Roof, but I forgive you, hate won't win. You know the only way you can say that? To a man who just killed your mother? Christ, who is our only peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we talk about a difficult subject that is very close to our hearts and our homes, even for someone like me. And we pray that you and your grace would do a great work in our church, in Redeemer, that this would be a place where we would not only welcome minorities and continue to do so, but we would love deeply and continue to do so. We ask you, Father, to work in our midst. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond? looking to Christ.